I still go on courses where I have people who are professional journalists. And if I hear it once, I hear it 20 times over the five days. My God, I didn't know my phone could do that. So strange, isn't it? Why I is know, that? It is, but they, because we have done a really shit job at teaching them, obviously, on a Possibly. broad scale of how to do this. Because honestly, they know it's a phone. They know it's a camera. But when you show them what it can actually do, honestly, the amount of people that sit back and go, I had no idea. Welcome to the fifth episode of the Mobile Storytelling Podcast with me, Björn Staschen, in Hamburg. And me, Vice Fellinger, in Friesland, in the Netherlands. This podcast is about how to tell a story with your smartphone. And this time we have another guest in this episode, a guest who in the end, Vice, inspired us to do this podcast. We owe him, right? Yeah, definitely. Our guest today is Glenn Mulcahy. He has been the technology lead with the Irish public service broadcaster RTE when he started the movement, Mobile Journalism. Because it was Glenn who organized the first mobile journalism conference, later called MojoFest. And it was him who brought together a community of journalists around the world. Uh, welcome, Glenn, and thank you for joining us. Well, thanks so much for inviting me, guys. I think your praise is completely unjustified in fairness, but, you know, nice of you to say nonetheless. There's so much to talk about, but we only have half an hour or so, Glenn. So we thought we'd try to condense your perspective on mobile journalism uh, on three aspects. What you have achieved, the journalists, these difficult folks you work with, and where you think this movement will go. So first of all, what have you achieved? And we start at the beginning. You introduced mobile journalism at the Irish broadcaster RTE. How did that work? How did you get them to get out their phones? Um, by accident, if I'm to be perfectly honest. I'd love to say that there was a broad strategy, uh, but there wasn't at the beginning. It was, it was actually purely by accident. It, it, was, it happened by chance. I was uh, overseas doing training as a video journalism trainer uh, with four other trainers, I think it was. And while the students were all out filming with their big professional VJ cameras, I had a bit of time on my hands. I had an iPhone 4 or 4S and the first generation iPad and out of boredom mainly. I went off and shot some interviews with the other trainers, some GVs around the training center we were in in Budapest, and I cut it together an iMovie on the iPad. Not even thinking about frame rates or great quality audio, just, eh, eh, let's just see what happens. Uh, I FTP'd it back to RTE. I didn't tell them that it was shot in a phone, and I was amazed that it was passed through the relatively cursory kind of ingest process and left sitting on the server. So I rang my boss back in Donnybrook and said, can you have a look at the stuff that I've just sent over and tell me what you think? And uh, he, you know, be, being the head of technology and news was kind of like, well, it's a little bit overexposed. The reds are a bit hot, but it's fine. Yeah. I mean, which one of the cameras did you use? It was like, I shot that in the iPhone 4S. And it was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. 4S. So when I got back to Dublin, we sat down and I had done a bit of research. I discovered um, Handheld Hollywood, a vlog by Taz Goldstein, who actually came to the first Mojo Fest. So it was kind of like one of those eureka moments. But I saw a thing that he did. And he was looking at gear for filmmaking, but he, he was looking at the Auli Bubo, this bizarre-shaped bat-style-esque oh, yeah. holder thing. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Useless, actually, in hindsight, but, you know, it was, it was the first thing. And then there was the AR4i from Fostex and all that early gear that came out. But um, So basically, I, I, I pitched, this is all the stuff that's popping up in the market. You can adapt microphones with these adapter cables. It was all TRS, TRS back then. And I basically said, look... Um, I think we should make a pitch to try and get some gear and test it and, and see if we can make a go of this. All the journalists want these smartphones. The CFO has said quite bluntly 
that they have Nokia E52s and they're not getting anything more than an E52 unless they can prove that they're going to do something more with it other than make phone calls. So um, two, two key landmarks. The first thing is, is that they gave me a research budget. So I went off and tried loads of apps. I tried iOS and Android at the time. Um, and I, that's when I discovered Filmic Pro, actually. And I put together kind of these five apps will let us get from A to B. The AR4i was the hardware that we chose. Uh, we had Sony microphones, wireless microphones going into the AR4i. And um, I gave that kit to Sean McEntee, one of our video journalists down in the far, far, far west of the country where he works completely on his own. And I said, shoot a story, tell no one, edit it on the iPad I've given you, tell no one, send it in and let's see what happens. And he did. And it was broadcast. And after the broadcast, that's when we dropped the bombshell. Hey, we've just broadcast our first iPhone story. What, and what year are we talking about? When when did that happen? Um, that was, I think that was 2013. And I could actually, I could time check that one by going to uh, Vimeo and checking because he posted that story that he shot on the iPhone shortly after it was done. Um, so I could definitely time that, but I think it was 2013. So to cut a long story short, in seven years, where did RTE get since then so where is rte now did it work for them um i would say to an extent yes but i would say it has not reached anything like its true potential but i will also say that i think now as a result of covid19 i think people have finally started to stop the premise and the pretense of it's not good enough for broadcast and have finally accepted that in fact it is a device that everybody has and as a result of that uh, the technology division to be fair now they were very receptive it was news that was very very slow to adopt because they had eng cameras they had vj cameras they had large chip cameras um But I think now needs must. And as a result of that, many of the journalists who might have been reluctant for lots of different reasons, technical quality was one, credibility was another, union issues were another one, all those issues stacked up to slow the process down. But the bottom line is now they have a dedicated team led by Philip Bromwell, who makes stories pretty much every single day, entirely produced, shot and edited on mobile, made for mobile and social. And I think that's a kind of a flagship effort for a national broadcaster. So it hasn't had the broad sweep that I would have hoped for, but I'm out of there over two and a half years now. And in the last month and a half, paradoxically, um, they approached me and said, we want to do two documentaries where we want to get people to shoot on their iPhones. Can you come and help? And it was like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. That's fine. I can do that. Uh, and actually, as it happened, they asked my wife to be one of the subjects. So that was even more fun because I got not only to advise people, but to shoot the stuff as well. And it was great. We sat at home, watched this show being broadcast and just went... There is no discussion anymore. There is no argument anymore. Anything that is trying to stop this is purely political motivation. It has got nothing to do with quality anymore. The show was great. They got a reach of people all over the world from the Irish diaspora. All of them self-shot their content. Yes, there was a bit of room for improvement, but the nature of the story was it was people telling their story firsthand, in person, uh, while under quarantine in various parts of the world. And it bloody worked. End of story, it worked. So the debate is over. The question is whether after covid people will continue to use it in the way that it has been used over the last eight to 12 weeks. Yeah, but do you think that this time it's actually a proven concept that nobody will think, uh, okay, it's nice for those personal stories, those lockdown stories, but the big news stories, no, never on iPhones. Don't you think that's still the case? 
that is still the case. Yeah, you're hundred percent right, and and it's unfortunate, but there is there is some logic to that argument. So at one stage, when when we were kind of I won't use the word battling, but we were embroiled in the whole union negotiations of the deployment phasing and all this sort of stuff and how the training was going to work. And I remember at one point a, a comment came out, sort of saying, you know, these things are fine for the odd throwaway story and maybe the odd B-roll shot, but they're never going to make up any substantive part of the bulletin. So as a deliberate exercise, I made the entire class sit through our nine o'clock news bulletin. And we went through every single shot of every package in the show and basically agreed unanimously. Could that be shot on the phone? Yes or no? Every single one. And the numbers came in at roughly 83%. And it was oh, like... it must have been fun. You must be a great teacher. I was every nearly killed by the shot. cameraman. <laughs> I, I, I'm not kidding you. It, it almost got violent. They were absolutely livid with me. But I'm, I'm not basing this on rhetoric or theory. I'm going, I took a random bulletin and we analyzed it as a group of people and we came up at 83%. So what I'm saying is I get the argument that you still need ENG cameras. I do, I don't want to get rid of the cameramen. They, they truly are fantastic storytellers with incredibly big lenses. And those lenses are the one thing, in spite of Huawei and Samsung, those lenses are still the one big thing that sets ENG cameras apart from what a phone can do at this point in time. However, um, I still think that a mixed economy is the most sensible thing. And I also feel, even this would go back to my thoughts on video journalism back in the day. I also feel there are definitely times when you want to deploy more than one person on a story. If you look at what's happening in the US right now, the idea of deploying mobile journalists into those extremely volatile situations may seem like the perfect opportunity to prove the concept. I would also say it's an incre incredibly volatile, hostile environment. You need to use mojo swarms put out teams of five or six people working as a team, giving you multiple angles, but watching each other's backs. They did this. Shadi Rahimi spoke about this as the first Mojocon in 2015. Al Jazeera covered the riots in Ferguson in Mojo swarms, you know? So the, the, the way to do it is there. It's just how the hell do you get people to think and realize of the potential? What, Glenn, is um, the thing you are most proud of? You've left RTE, you, you say, they are not using mobile journalism to their fullest potential. You've traveled the world teaching uh, people, teaching at uh, television stations, but also social media outlets nearly everywhere. So is there a development that you kind of kicked off where you'd say that is what I'm really proud of because there it is working? Um, oh, that's a great question. I, I will say this. Thank you. I, 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 th <laughs> I think... I think I am reasonably happy and content with where I left things in RTE. I'm very, very proud of where Philip has taken things in RTE since. And I think where it has progressed to is, is very much on him, far more than on me. The one thing I would say that I personally have gotten a lot of personal satisfaction from is way back in 2013, I actually was asked to go to the Middle East for the very, very first time to do training for Al Jazeera. And I remember having a conversation with a group of producers on my very first trip. There was a guy in the training center said, hey, I love all this gadgety stuff that you have. Can you come over and show some of the producers in Al Jazeera English all this mobile stuff that you're doing? So I went over, you know, yay, going to get to see Al Jazeera English. And I, I got a five minute audience and um, I was basically told we don't even use video journalists. There is absolutely no reason in the world why we would need mobile. But thank you for coming and showing us your toys. That was the word that was used, your toys. So I remember walking out of there going, well, it was a very interesting trip to the Middle East. I don't think I'll be back anytime soon. Uh, however, I have been back a lot since, 30 times nearly at this stage over seven years, which is pretty bloody phenomenal. But at one stage, I was asked to meet the entire executive, including the director general, to talk about mobile journalism and what my vision of it was for the future. And I was actually really quite nervous. You don't get an audience like that very often. 
And um, it got a bit heated. There was pushback from uh, several department heads. I won't name them, but not everyone was welcoming of the concept, let's say. And it was all about professional credibility. That was, the, that was their concern. And I sort of said, look, you know, I can give you five case studies off the top of my head for times when having a mobile phone and someone who knows how to use it as a content production tool has basically equated to exclusive news access. And I said, that is based on limited amounts of people gone out into the field with the skills. You have thousands of people in the field who right now depend on accessibility to a camera crew to be able to create a story for the service. You're trying to diversify beyond linear television into the social news gathering sphere, into telling stories on Instagram and Facebook Live and everything else as well, why don't you, rather than force a square peg through a round hole, allow people the creative freedom to use my training course to up their storytelling skills, let them focus on the skills of storytelling on social media, and by the way, that will still be good practice for the day that they have to do a TV report with their phone. And to a certain extent, I walked out of that kind of thing and I might have buried myself because um, it wasn't met with uh, kind of, you know, broad applause or anything. But Dima Khatib from AJ Plus followed me out and went, that was an inspiring talk. You've pressed all the right buttons. Unfortunately, most of those buttons are attached to nerves. And as a result of that, that's why I felt a little bit kind of frigid. But what I would say to you is everything that you said is absolutely on the money. That's exactly strategically where we need to be. And I would say, let's just wait and see what happens. So I kind of thought, deep exhale. Okay, fine. I haven't completely killed my future career with Zero, So let's see what happens. And then last October, it pivoted. Out of the blue, I got a call to say, okay, the DG has decided that he wants to deploy training across 12 of our regional bureaus. We want you to go on the road. We want you to train Al Jazeera staff in all these regions. We'll book you right up to Christmas Day, basically. And uh, I did. Yeah, I went on the road for 12 weeks. My wife was, as you can imagine, ecstatic with the idea of me being away for that length of time. But the flip side of it is, is that quite a number of the people that I met going to various different bureaus really got it, saw the potential, didn't have the same kind of, you know, we're Al Jazeera, only big cameras will do kind of attitude. They were far more pragmatic. And since then, I've had them sending me reports that they've completely shot and edited on the phone and broadcast. And gradually, it's like the stone is being chipped away and they start to, to realize the potential. Now, I know, Vitsi, you've been doing this yourself for a broadcaster for years. So this is all old news to you. But big, big traditional international broadcasters like Al Jazeera are very, very slow to adapt to change. Absolutely. And if you don't talk corporate, but if you think about all the other single people that you met at Mojo Fest that you might have inspired. What are kind of the, the, the single journalists, the, the, the persons, um, maybe from developing countries, from countries where te technology is not uh, so easy to, to use? Which are the stories you're proud of? You say, well, I've really made a change there. You know, I, I can't hold one up, actually, Bjorn, to be perfectly honest and say that was the pivotal one that I'm most proud of because X did that. I mean, I've been very, very fortunate that I've trained um, with the Thompson Foundation every summer on their summer convergence course. And I've met people from, let's just, I won't name the countries, but countries that have somewhat repressive regimes. Let's just let's just leave it hanging like that, okay? And yet I've seen the excitement in someone's face when they finally realize that they have this powerful creative tool in their pocket to tell stories. Whereas up until then, they felt completely and utterly like just 
beholden to whatever resources the editorial teams would deploy. Um, so, I mean, you know, there's that sort of example where you can see the, the potency of empowering people to tell stories in otherwise difficult environments. Um, if you look at what Yusuf did, for instance, in the Hindustan Times, gone in with a huge community of, of um, mobile journalists, basically, in India, you can see the potential of that. I mean, I don't know how, how you measure the success of these. Is it the one-hit wonder story, or is it when it starts to take hold and you start to see a lot of content being produced on an ongoing basis that you measured as a success. Um, but I honestly, truthfully, cannot hold up one story example and say that was the eureka moment for me. Yeah, you, you mentioned Yusuf, Yusuf Omar, who uh, has started his own uh, company, Hashtag Our Stories, uh, which is uh, mainly about civic journalism. Uh, people who might not be a journalist per se, but uh, will have a story to tell. Is this the real potential of mobile journalism in your view? Well, before I answer that, I'm, I'm going to be a pedant and say I, I basically I'm, I'm old school in many different ways. I'm old school with Snapchat. I kind of feel I should never be allowed on the platform because it's just embarrassing. It's like granddad's dancing at weddings type embarrassing. So in that regard, I'm old school because for me, journalism is a professional qualification. It's not just a kind of uh, something that you can do by virtue of an act. Um, so there's a lot of debate about this. And, you know, I've had heated discussions with Mr. Rosenblum about um, what is the definition of journalism. But for me, to be a journalist, just as to be a dentist or a doctor, you go and get qualified, you do research, you come out with an academic qualification that makes sure that you're basically approaching stories in a particular way, both rounded, with objectivity, with this idea of trying to balance bias and understanding both sides of the story. So when someone takes a phone out of their pocket and presses the record button and points it at something, I don't see that necessarily as an act of journalism. Yes, as an act of reportage. So to be complete pedant, citizen reporting, I'm okay with. Citizen journalism, I have a bit of a personal hang-up with. I say that because what um, Yusuf has done in the past is he has empowered actual qualified journalists. But as you say, what Hashtag Our Stories is doing is empowering members of the public effectively to tell stories on a platform. So it's storytelling, yes. It's mobile storytelling, yes. Is it journalism strictly? Mm. Kind of on the on, on the fence a bit about it. Does it really matter? Does it matter? Well, yes and no, because if it's uh, journalism, I'm assuming that it's got a level of credibility, that it is something that I can trust in. Whereas if it's someone who's not a qualified journalist and doesn't understand the idea of bias, they might inadvertently, or for that matter, intentionally tell a story that is very, very misleading, but it's still a very engaging story. So I think that is the one thing that is cautionary when it comes to citizen reporting, that there needs to be an editorial layer that basically, you know, verifies and texts the integrity of the story. But do you think using the mobile technology also changes these traditional journalists in the way they tell their story? I think it could do. I mean, I, I put this in context, right? I've long held the idea that the quality of a news report from a journalist with a camera person and or producer is about 60% relationships and 40% storytelling. I make no joke about this. Like, I am aware of situations where journalists who don't like camera crews will go on a story together, not speak on the way to the location, speak cursory amounts at the actual event, and basically then exchange gruff, not even pleasantries when they're actually exchanging the disc at the end. And yet you're hoping this will be a cohesive story where the pictures have been shot by one person, the interviews conducted by someone else, and there has been no collaboration anywhere along the line. Is that the most conductive way to create a story? Of course it's not, okay? Of course it's not. So if a journalist can trust that they are don't have that they don't have to compromise their journalistic integrity in order to be able to do these technical things, 
I often use the idea when I'm doing the training courses that, you know, learning to be a mobile journalist, a professional mobile journalist is almost like learning to drive a car. You basically practice and practice and practice until it becomes muscle memory. And then you can stop getting wound up about all the technology stuff because you just remember how to do it. And then all the energy goes back into the storytelling and the journalism part. And that's what I try and tell people to aspire to. And yet it, it's, it's funny. It is uh, on a lot of my trainings, uh, the tech uh, is the problem for most journalists. It gets in the way and they don't want to learn because they think they will be lesser journalists because of it. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've, I've heard that pushback too, Vitsa, but that, that's why I use the metaphor about driving a car. Mm -hmm. When you start, you have to watch the bloody gear stick. If you were still driving a car by looking at the gear stick and not looking at the road after a year, let's face it, there'd be an awful lot more fatalities on the road. So thankfully, practice does make perfect. But do you think all journalists uh, can learn this trick? I think all journalists who have any level of dexterity and more than just, you know, partly fluffy gray matter between their ears can be taught the basics. Not everyone has a natural flair for it. Not everyone is going to be a Philip Bromwell or, or of that particular caliber. But I think when you break down storytelling into the absolute fundamental basics, like how to frame a basic shot, how to record decent enough audio, uh, not even the editing part, because that doesn't necessarily need to take part by the journalist in the field. That could be, could be done by a craft editor back at base. So you do a hybrid one where they shoot for you and send the stuff back and let someone else assemble the story. Yeah, I think you can bring almost everyone to that level however obviously without naming names i have met a few how how do i choose my words on this one let's just say a few I, gifted people who just 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 know just, just give us the names you know <laughs> yeah attempting tempting but i definitely would never be able to walk down streets in certain cities if i did but yeah there's just you know every now and again aptitude is a real thing let's just let's just leave it at that okay aptitude is a real thing and and some people simply do not have it It's funny that you sing the high song of journalism and draw such a strong line between journalism and uh, what people film on their phone if they are not journalists. Um, but you are not a journalist yourself, right, Glenn? You That's come correct. from the technical side. So yeah. how come you've kind of such high praise for this bit of journalism? I mean, you have you must have worked with, with many people Uh, that possibly even don't uh, deserve the name to be a journalist. So how come, especially you sing the high song of journalism? I have, you know, I've, I've been in broadcast, I guess, for 20 years, Bjorn, and I've had the pleasure of meeting and working with people who are not just, in my opinion, esteemed journalists, but people who, by peer review, are esteemed journalists. They've won awards for their storytelling. I've witnessed that storytelling. I, too, have been moved by it. I think there genuinely are incredibly talented and gifted storytellers within some of the journalism community that I've met. I also think Some of the people that I've met, I mean, particularly in Al Jazeera, some of the people that I've met on the training courses have left me in nothing but a state of awe. You have to have either something very wrong with you or something very, very right with you to want to go into a war zone, to put your life in jeopardy for the sake of wanting to tell a story that otherwise will not be told. That is not what everyone in, uh, you know, chooses as a career, but there are people who realize how important that type of a job is. And, and that for me is, is the kind of, is the journalism stuff that we're talking about. I mean, again, I'm not belittling people who want to report on what's happening before them. Genuinely, I'm just trying to differentiate the, the technical terminology between reporting and journalism. So if you look at the content that's being shared on social media right now as a result of the Black Lives Matter protest in the US, 
Am I saying that that's not got journalistic integrity? Am I saying that that hasn't got any value? Absolutely not. That, in many ways, is the absolute counter-narrative to the, I'm not allowed to swear in the podcast, I presume, so we'll just say the BS type of propaganda stuff that's been paraded by members of the Trump administration, for example, where the counter-narrative is simple just denial, even though there's documentary proof that proves otherwise. Um, So, of course, it has a very, very important value and a very, very important role to play. But again, you need to be careful because it is very easy to get a group of people together and to deliberately thwart and um, to create content that is truly non-factual and is true disinformation and to make that go viral. And we've seen this time and time again since the Trump inauguration and ever since. We've seen this concerted effort to disinform and malinform the public with true intent. So journalism, while we get caught up about the technology all the time and about the workflows all the time, journalism's USP is trust in one word. It doesn't matter how you box it. It doesn't matter how you deliver it to the audience. It just matters that when they hear it, read it, see it, they know that it's the bloody truth. And that is the one thing for me that kind of sets journalism apart from any other form of storytelling. Storytelling can be fact or fiction, but with journalism, it must be truthful and have integrity. For me, that's the professional part. So that's why I respect it so much. Now, to answer your question, no, I'm not a journalist. And my background actually is in the creative arts, but I ended up in broadcast through technology. But from very, very early on, I started working with journalists. From 1997, I started working with journalists. And as a result of that, managed camera crews, managed vision mixers, basically had news DNA embedded into me over a period of 18 years. So like I'm passionate about news and I'm passionate about journalism. I'm just not a qualified journalist. With the phone kind of enabling everyone to tell a story, Is the smartphone also kind of the opening the box of Pandora? Because 20, 30 years ago, you could be sure if there was a video story on television, it was told and produced by a journalist. Nowadays, with a smartphone, you can't be sure anymore. So is this smartphone the box of Pandora in a way as well for journalism? Yeah, 100%. I mean, again, it kind of goes back to that same point. So the the benefit of smartphones, again, it's a Michael Rosenblum quote, but basically they're ubiquitous. There's three billion of them on the planet. I don't know if that's true or not, but anyway, that's his number. Um, but they are ubiquitous. So that means that we see more documentary evidence of things happening in real time. But the problem is, is when there's that volume of content, you get a new challenge and the challenge is discovery. How do you find the good content? How do you find the relevant content? So more and more, I think um, the fact that there are so many smartphones out there is both a gift and a curse all in one go. But at the same time, I think the vast majority of people who basically react to something that they witness by taking the phone out and documenting it are doing in good faith. They're doing so in good faith. The problem is when you look at concerted effort by campaigns like you know, well, do I need to name them? I won't. But, you know, you know the countries I'm referring to who have entire war rooms of people who are deliberately generating fake content and dis misleading content, basically, to deliberately disrupt narratives. Um, that's the danger, that they can harness armies of people who basically are being hired to create false narratives or they can distort narratives that were genuine but basically are deliberately being manipulated to mislead. And and I have to be honest, I don't think mobile phones are the biggest challenge going forward for journalism. I think AI and deep fakes are the biggest challenge going forward for journalism. And I honestly think the only way to try and fight that is to double down on the idea of integrity and trust. So if you look at the future, now that we're talking about that, what 
do you see in our near future for mobile journalism? Is it going to be just journalism? Uh, is it going to be mainstream, what we're doing now? Uh, is there a next best thing? I mean, we talked about Yusuf Omar uh, a couple of minutes ago. He uses uh, glasses to film his uh, surroundings. Is stuff like that the future? I think where there's a huge opportunity that as of yet has been pretty much untapped is the idea of expanding your news gathering potential. So I'll, I'll give you like, I've always been interested in business models, okay? And one of the ones that really, really has preoccupied me over the last few years is this idea of local news and how it's contracting and basically dying around the world, whether that is local newspapers shutting down because they're no longer financially viable, whether it's local radio stations shutting down because they're no, no longer financially viable. And all of these are relatively low cost um, production when you compare them to television. For me, you know, radio newspapers and online can all be served by mobile journalism. And if you stopped worrying about the office space and the print edition and the broadcast infrastructure that you need to deliver the message and realize that you could do an entire mobile ecosystem, both on the content creation end and on the contest content distribution end, you could basically completely rethink the business model for local news. And that would mean that the money that you have, rather than being spent on millions of euros on capital investment on equipment, could in fact be invested into more boots on the ground of professional journalists being paid a decent wage to go out there and tell stories in communities and niche topics and really giving proper spread, becoming the lifeblood of communities again. It's the one thing that the digitization over the last 10 or 20 years has actually been the antithesis of. What has happened more and more is that the big, big broadcasters are spending more and more millions every year, basically, on extremely high-level equipment. And it's almost like there's a rat race between who's got the biggest bloody video wall or the best goddamn ENG camera. Frankly, in my opinion, I've been at the cutting edge of all that stuff. It doesn't matter a shite. Excuse my language, that'll probably need to be censored. But it doesn't. Because the flip side of it is, I said at an EBU conference a few years back, someone was talking about video walls and studios. And I just said, why do you need a studio? And the whole room fell silent. And I went, no, seriously, I'm not kidding. Why do you need a studio? And I won't say the name of the person, but one person pushed back immediately and go, don't be ridiculous. Of course we need a studio. And I'm, but why? Does I have anyone in news ever stand back and for a minute just go, why do we do it the way we do it? Because the problem with news is it's a rat race as well. Everyone is pushing for the daily bloody deadlines. It's rare for anyone to stand back from it and take a really cold, objective look of could you do this better in a different way? So where I th think there's a huge potential and I, hope, I really genuinely hope mobile will be leveraged to realize this is rethinking the business models to try and bring Lifeboat Black into communities. Because if you can start at community level, you can scale it to regional level and you can then scale it to national and what the hell, international level if the model bloody works. And mobile... But isn't it strange, Glenn, that... I mean, the mobile phone has been capable of doing that for the last five, six, seven years. And local newspapers and radio stations have been dying for even longer. So why don't they take this lifeline? I mean, it sounds like a good idea, but I mean, why are they still dying then? So it's one thing to pivot a traditional organization to a new business model. It's another thing entirely to serve the audience that is left after that business dies with a new business model. And for me, and I've been in both situations, Bjorn, when you go into a traditional newspaper, the guys are so locked in to the way that they do things and the process by which they deliver, they cannot see above the parapet. Like, I'm not going to mention, but a very, very big, very reputable brand, when I went in to do training for them, the head of news actually said to me, you can do your training with the staff as long as it doesn't get away with their print deadlines. That is the single most important thing. And I gruffly responded, well, 
Yeah, that's one way of doing it. Or you could see the deadline as being the bit that's dying and the bit that I'm trying to give them as the survival route to making sure that your business continues to be a success. They brought me in to do one course and I was never called back subsequently. But hey, you know, you'll have that. And I'm, I'm a bit outspoken at the best of times. So sometimes I do cut off my nose to spite my face. But what I'm saying is those businesses either need to, of their own volition, pivot or they need to be let die and something new needs to be brought in from the ashes of it. And that's where the mobile journalism model is an opportunity. Because if the business models are actually already broken and the management cannot see that and are willing to continue to flog a dead donkey until it dies, then unfortunately there is no hope for them. What needs to happen is someone comes in with the vision to realize the potential of the new gear, hires the best of the people that were the local beat reporters that were there already, upskills them, lets them make mistakes, but lets them learn in the process, and then basically brings them back up to the level of where they need to be to keep this idea of local journalism alive. That's, for me, where the mobile the main mobile opportunity is. Of course, big, big broadcast networks can continue to roll it out across, but if you're a massive television broadcaster, where however you're funded, the chances that you're going to pivot to an all-mobile newsroom is slim to none because you have your Avid infrastructure and you have your ENG cameras and sat trucks and everything else as well. And when you're in that ivory tower, the last thing you want to do is hand over the keys of the Lamborghini for a ladder, okay? Sorry, but it's the bloody truth. But when you're in the ashes and everything that you knew for your career has literally fallen in on yourself and you're trying to figure out how in the name of Jesus are you going to pay the next mortgage bill, that's when you're going to be willing to rethink everything that you do and realize that the mobile phone is a goddamn lifeline. Just put all your ego stuff into a box and seal it up for a while and learn to use the bloody thing because it can, and in time it will, save local journalism. But do you think that this is something that an already existing company is willing to do in the end? Or do we need complete new uh, journalistic organizations? I am amazed, guys, that 10 years into smartphone or 11 years into smartphone being prolific around the world, that the likes of bloody Apple and others have not sat back and thought, what could we strategically do to enable this? What could we do to just make this happen, to facilitate it? Because they go on at length about facilitating filmmaking and empowering storytellers. But what we actually need is a cohesive strategy. And I will tell you, a year and a half ago, whatever it was, when Adobe launched the product, Adobe Premiere Rush, I sat back and thought, oh my God, this could be transformational for local news. But the problem is they have locked themselves into a continuous pipeline of single creation pipeline. So it's made to shoot and edit and publish by one person. Collaboration is not built in at all. Now, I did a, a simple little graphic and a hypothesis back in 2017 when I was leaving RTE, kind of like a fine farewell. Felt like a Jerry Maguire moment, to be honest. But anyway, um, in that, I hypothesized about this idea of a virtualized newsroom using artificial, artificial intelligence to help with the cataloging and indexing and archiving. And all that technology existed back then, so it has matured tenfold in the past two years since. But no one has yet decided to invest in the infrastructure. IBM spent a goddamn fortune on infrastructure that could have done exactly this. But they sat there and looked at all the assets they'd bought, live streaming solutions, camera solutions, editing, cloud storage, and went, we just don't know what we're going to do with this. And I, I, I had a meeting, I won't say with who, but I had a meeting and kind of went, but, 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 like, you have everything. Put it in a box, stick a label on it, even if it's a white label where people can buy it and just license it and just put it out there. And yet... No, two years on, still no solution. I mean, I'm not kidding you when I say this. I would love to see something like the Knight Foundation or one of those other big, massive US journalism um, um, kind of funds 
deciding to put all their resources together into building a virtualized platform, in other words, a cloud-based platform that would enable this. And all it has to be is the base of the actual building. All it has to be is the infrastructure. Let people customize it and you know modify it, almost open source if you like, and then just put it out there and let people experiment and play. Ideally, you would have it so that people wouldn't have to learn everything from the ground up. They would have access so that you could you know, use the likes of Filmic Pro or LumaFusion to do the front end part. The bit that you worry about is the bit that manages the news running running order, if you will. In other words, manages the editorial side, but also manages the actual data. It's not like you could do it. If I had money, if I won the lotto, you could be damn sure that that's where I'd be spending my money right now. And I would make it free. I would just put it on the bloody market and say, it's out there, do whatever the hell you want with it. Here's an example of how you can use it. That's the truth. Glenn, it's quite simple to grasp the potential of a phone. It takes about 20 minutes, maybe. And here you Don't are. Don't tell anyone this... that, Bjorn. I spend five <laughs> days teaching people. <laughs> no, you just can't to learn grasp, it in 20 to minutes. Grasp, to grasp the potential of a phone. I didn't say how to, to learn how to use it, but to grasp the potential for a CEO or whatever. And the phone's been capable of doing this for like 10 years. So why don't we see a faster change? Either within the old companies that you say might be lost, let them go to ashes. But why don't we see the new ones rising already? Why is it taking so long? I, 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 so I'm, I'll have to get a plug in for it, but I will say this. Filmic and Luma and myself teamed up a couple of weeks back for this thing called the Mobile Creator Summit. And the whole idea of it was in the time of COVID, where everyone's sitting at home, we want to try and get them to learn new skills. Could we do something to basically raise awareness and raise profile? MojoFest was gone. Perugia was gone, Mobile Work Congress gone, everything was gone. And it was like, well, what do we do in, that, in, in the absence of all that? And the whole idea was to just raise awareness, just to get people who've done really interesting things to talk about what they did and how they did it so that we could try and raise awareness. And, I, I'm, you know, you, I and Witze are in this ecosystem and have been in this ecosystem for, you know, like best of eight, ten years, if not even longer. Yeah, but it's not a secret. It's so simple. But you, I still go on courses where I have people who are professional journalists. And if I hear it once, I hear it 20 times over the five days. My God, I didn't know my phone could do that. So strange, isn't it? Why I is know, that? It is, but they, because we have done a really shit job at teaching them, obviously, on a Possibly. broad scale of how to do this. Because honestly, they know it's a phone. They know it's a camera. But when you show them what it can actually do, honestly, the amount of people that sit back and go, I had no idea. I hear it all the time. So somewhere... Somewhere we have failed in really amplifying the message of how bloody potent these devices are. And I guess to go back to the beginning of where we started, that's why I was so excited about the Al Jazeera story, because it was a big organization that finally had decided to open their mind to the potential of this and kind of throw the chips in the air and see where they fall. And I was seeing this eureka moment in people's eyes. If a big brand does it, if a big brand does it in a cohesive way with the strategy behind it and delivers some real breakthrough stuff, others will sit up and take notice. It's the only way of making the other big TV networks sit back and go, damn it, we're missing a trick. We need to get in on this game. But if it doesn't happen that way, they're locked into the daily routines. They know how to get from A to B using the roadmap they currently have. There is no time in a normal news wheel to raise your head up above there and go, what new skills should I be learning? What, 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 is, what else is out there that I need to know? Honestly, most of the time I just have people telling me, oh, yeah, um, I'm not going to have time for this. But I mean, you know, I'm still open to learn some of these new skills. I, like, honestly, at the start of most courses, I'll have that at least once. But actually, by the end of the course, most of those people have pivoted to, I can't wait to shoot my first story. We have failed. That is a bit of a sad ending. 
I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but we have to end anyway. So thanks a lot, Glenn, for your time. This was the fifth episode of the Mobile Journalism Podcast uh, with me, Vice Valenga, in Friesland. And me, Bjorn Staschen, a failed Bjorn Staschen as well in Hamburg. You find us on all platforms. <laughs> If you like what you hear, please share it and comment so we can get better. What would you like to hear about? Whom should we talk to for this episode? Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.